And so today we are in Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus goes into the wilderness and is tempted by the devil. If you remember, uh, last week we talked about Matthew chapter 3, about baptism. And uh, Jesus' baptism was this really powerful time of affirmation. It's where we first hear from God the Father that this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And it's a special time of kind of support, affirmation, and, and almost like the Spirit as He uh, descends on Jesus. And the Father, as He speaks from heaven, is saying, this is the King. He has arrived. Powerful time. And then in chapter 4, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. Uh, hungry dry, lonely wilderness. The Holy Spirit in chapter 3 anoints Jesus, and if you remember from uh, chapter 1, that the Messiah, the Christ, those words mean anointed one, and then we saw in chapter 3 that the Holy Spirit affirms that and anoints the anointed one. But then in chapter 4, now the Spirit pushes him out in the desert. From the love and comfort of baptism and of God's affirmation, God the Father's affirmation on Jesus, to lonely wilderness. Um, In chapter 3, a baptism where a voice comes from heaven, and now chapter 4 in the wilderness, a voice from hell. Baptism signifies unity with God. When we get baptized, we are unified with, when we die to our old life and raise to a new one, it signifies unity with God. Chapter 3, Jesus, unity with the Trinity. Chapter 4, isolation and loneliness. And a really important question is being asked, which is, what will this supposed king, this supposed son of God do when he finally faces trials and not just affirmation? Chapter 3, this is the son I'm pleased with. And then in chapter 4, if you are truly the son of God, then. I have noticed, uh, and you might have noticed this as well if you've been a Christian for some time, that this Chapter 3, chapter 4 mirrors an experience that a lot of Christians go through. There might be times that you have had where your faith was like thriving and God felt close to you and your motivation to open up the word and then when you actually did open up the word, something special happened and you saw something beautiful and it changed your life. And then sometimes as Christians, you face discouragement. You face loneliness. There are seasons where you go, I don't even know if God exists and if he exists, if I even think he's good anymore. Chapter 3 moments are powerful. God uses those to help us grow in our faith and to know him. And then some of us, even today, maybe are rolling into church where you're like, I don't even want to be here right now if my wife didn't force me. Uh, I'm dry. I'm lonely. I'm in a spiritual wilderness, so to speak. I don't think I need to even really open up the sermon by convincing you that we need to know because I just think it's like laden in the heart of every Christian. We need to know what to do with these dry wilderness times in our faith. We have to know. And the big idea for this morning as we read through Matthew 4 is if we can believe in God like Jesus believes in God, then we will be able to face trials like Jesus faced trials. We'll be able to deal with temptation like Jesus dealt with temptation, and we will be able to pass tests like Jesus passed tests in Matthew chapter 4. The shocking thing for me, actually, is that uh, the Bible promises us that we will go through trials, temptation, and tests. It's an assurance. I'm thinking of Isaiah 43. Uh, Isaiah writes, when you pass through the waters, this is God speaking to us, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. That's God's promise. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. What's the promise in this passage? 
you are going to go through waters, you are going to go through rivers, and you will have to walk through fire. It's like one of the promises of the Christian life. You're going to go through it. There's going to be moments where you go, I don't know what's true. I don't know what's good. I don't know if I'm upright or upside down. You're going to go through it. Of course, the promise is, as you walk through fire, you won't be burned. As you walk through the water, it won't uh, drown you. And so it's in that context that we see that Jesus faces trials, wilderness, hunger, and temptation. And if we can face these things like Jesus did, it will help us to thrive even, to pass the test, to thrive within trials, and to grow from them and do God's will even when we don't know what is going on in our life. So let's read our passage starting in verse Chapter 1, Matthew 4, chapter 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city uh, and had him stand on the highest point in the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command His angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that uh, you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came to attend to him. Today's passage is going to show us three things uh, to help us face temptation, trial, and tests, and that's this. We need to understand the source of temptation, recognize the strategy of Satan, and acquire strength for testing. And I won't have it on the screen here. We're just going to kind of throw the Bible up on the screen for the morning. So for you note takers, this is like your moment to shine. R understand the source of temptation, recognize the strategy of Satan, and acquire strength for testing. Before we jump into the source of temptation, we have to talk context here a little bit, the setting and the context. And if you look in verse 1, it says that Jesus was led by the Spirit. So this is not a surprise. This is not uh, a surprise to God that this even happened. He was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. So there's a purpose behind it. And when we're talking wilderness, we're, we're talking about in biblical geography, the southern part of uh, the area in which Jesus lived, north of the Dead Sea. So we've got the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, where Jesus was just baptized, and then uh, south of that, the Dead Sea. This low-lying, dry, salty area where not only is it, is it dry, but no plants can really live or very few plants can live in this low-lying area. So this is the wilderness that is from historic biblical archaeology in which Jesus leaves from chapter 3 and into this wilderness to the north of the Dead Sea. And Jesus was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, people who know their Old Testament in the first century and even maybe today, that should jump out at you. He was, uh, he was uh, in the wilderness for 40 days. He was hungry in an area of biblical geography in the wilderness. This brings any first century reader who knew their Old Testament to the Exodus. And to Moses' teachings and the relationship between Moses, the leader of God's people in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, 
and, uh, Moses and his relationship to God's people. So it brings us back to the Exodus and the 40 years of hunger and thirst and wandering that the Israelites did after God freed them from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt, into this wilderness, but then promised them that there would be a salvation to come after the wilderness into the promised land. And so Moses led Israel into the wandering, and then Joshua, after Moses passed away, uh, led them into the promised land. And already we see there's something Moses-y going on in this passage. And then you hear Jesus' quotes. Satan tempts him three times, and each time Jesus' response is a quote from Moses from Deuteronomy 6 through 8, where Moses is teaching the Israelites in the wandering before the promised land. In the end, the big question looming after you read this passage for the original readers trying to figure out who Jesus is, is okay, if Jesus can pass this test, then he can deal with the cross. And if he can lead the people today, for the first century readers, for the people who knew Jesus, if he can lead, Jesus, if he can lead us today through his faithfulness to God, then that's really something. Then maybe he can lead me into the promised land of eternity. That's the setting. The source of temptation, in the end, is loving creation more than the creator. So Jesus' response to these uh, temptations are these quotes from Deuteronomy 6 through 8. But he's using them in conversation with Satan, who knows who God is. Satan in this passage is actually also kind of like teasing the fact that he also knows that Jesus is the Son of God. So Satan knows Jesus is the Son of God. He knows who he is. And Satan knows his Old Testament. And so when Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6 through 8, he's using these phrases as shorthand, where the first century readers would have gone, oh, I remember that story. Oh, I remember that story. And I remember that context. So let's dig into some of the context to define what Jesus is talking about with temptation. So in Deuteronomy 6, it says in the second, we're looking at here at the second temptation. Uh, let me back up. I'll, let's talk about the temptation, then we'll talk about Deuteronomy. If you look in verses 5 through 7 of Matthew, uh, the devil takes Jesus to this holy city and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. And he says, throw down, throw yourself down, for it's written, the angels uh, will take care of you. That's a quote from Psalm 91. So Satan's quoting scripture to Jesus. But Jesus' quote is a shorthand to say this, Deuteronomy 6:10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, a land with large flourishing cities you didn't build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you didn't provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant, then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful. So now Moses is speaking to the Israelites to say, you're in the wandering now, and one day you're going to go into the promised land, and there's going to already be plants there, and God is going to orchestrate your life so that you are provided for. He's going to bring you money. He's going to bring you food. He's going to bring you houses. He's going to bring you wells, and you're just going to stroll in, and God's going to have taken care of this for you, the nation of Israel. And then God says, be careful in Deuteronomy 6. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then he goes on to say, I am a jealous God. And then he says, do not put the Lord, your God, to the test. 
The context here is, is God saying to Israel, I provide for you. I give you bread from heaven. I'm providing a promised land for you, but there's going to be a time when I provide so much for you in your life that you're going to love the things that I give you more than the Lord, so be careful. Don't forget the Lord. Don't forget the God who gave you your security, who gave you that bread, who gave you those wells. And I just love how realistic this is. I mean, how long do you think it took for the Israelites to stroll into the promised land before they forgot that it was God who gave them that, uh, gave him that provision? So in the end, the source of temptation, this might even seem obvious to you, the source of temptation is when we love the created thing over the creator of that thing. And that's when the, the, the disorientation of sin happens. When we love uh, intimacy over the God of sex, then that's when the dysfunction happens. When we love money over the God of provision, then that's when the dysfunction happens. It's, it's when we direct our worship and our affection and our trust from God to these other things, that's when we become greedy. That's when we become lustful. That's when we become self-centered with these things. And the source of temptation all the way back from Deuteronomy, is to say, don't forget the Lord. That it's almost as if all of the good things in our life are actually meant to point us to the goodness of who God is. Intimacy, money, your kids, whatever. And the, the problem comes when we worship those things. Let's do some application here for point number one. Um, question for you. What do you run to in the midst of trials? When things go bad, you get that feeling in the pit of your stomach and something is happening in your life where, where it really hits home to you. And it's different for every kind of person. Like sometimes people face rejection. And then other people, you'll tell your hurt, you'll tell that to someone else. And you'll say, I just hate it. My boss rejects me. He never praises me. And it stinks. And your friends sometimes will hear you say that and go, who cares? It's just your boss. Get over it. Your boss doesn't like you. This is not important. Because all of us have like these different things that we struggle with that cause trials. So here's my, my follow-up question. If it's unique to all of us, and my first question was, what, what causes that trial? What do you run to when, you, when something really hurts you? Separate question. Okay, it's not really a separate question, but uh, second question. What temptations do you struggle with? Like, what sins really tempt you? And don't you see a link between those two things? I mean, sometimes in my own life, it's just so direct. Trial happens. I run to something that is not Jesus, that is not sufficient, that doesn't love me, that doesn't forgive me, that is not good. And then in the midst of running to that thing, I'm now tempted to anger, tempted to gossip, tempted to any number of other sins because the trial drives me, now hear this, the trial drives me to my functional Savior. And if I worship something that is not God, then it'll always cause me to stare at, to look at, to lust after whatever that is, security, status, money, notoriety, acceptance. The problem with temptation is not just feeling tempted. And in fact, in the New Testament, the Greek word for temptation is almost never uh, emphasized. It doesn't mean the feeling when you're tempted. That's not what it's referring to. Actually, the Greek word for temptation is almost always used simply as a test. Because when temptations come in your life, it's a moment when you're being tested. That's the moment where you're saying, what do you find as your salvation when trials hit? That's the test. 
When the trials come and they drive you to whatever you really worship and the temptation comes there, now that's the test. Who are you going to serve? Who do you love? Who is your functional savior? The source of temptation is loving the creation more than the creator. Uh, My wife and I met and lived for a number of years in Bakersfield, California, and I'm not sure uh, if you've ever been there, but it's a very unique place to live. Like, the air is dirty. It's like you could grab it. It's like thick. It's just a, a constant dust. I used to live also in, in around Santa Barbara, and they called that God's country. Santa Barbara's by the beach. And I would say Bakersfield is like Mountain Dew country. I don't know how else to describe it. Like monster energy drink country. That's Bakersfield. And for the first week of May, when it finally gets to like 115 degrees in the desert, and the, it's just dusty and hot, It's kind of just common knowledge that everyone in the town is going to be angry at each other for at least like 10 or 12 days, because you just have to adjust emotionally to the fact that you get out of your car, and it's just hot, and there's no way to avoid it, and your brain starts to fire off like, dude, you have to get to shelter, or you're dead. You're dead beat. And it causes you to make weird choices, like you'll eat at whatever food place is just closest to where you parked, because you can't stand to walk across a parking lot, you'll sweat through all your clothes, and so you just eat at like these random fast food joints because you're like, that's where I got parking. Or you'll see people, they'll just drink soda all day because it's like the heat just convinces you that you just got to drink something or you're just going to die. In the same way, the trial, the heat that you go through, pushes you, it, it, it sparks that reaction in your brain to say, Warning, warning, you're being rejected again. Warning, you're, being, you're afraid that you're not going to have enough pleasure in your life. Warning, and it drives you to just fulfill whatever that immediate desire is, and that's oftentimes what drives us into temptation or drives us to choose something other than God in the midst of temptation. That's the source of temptation. Secondly, we have to recognize the strategy of Satan. And we talk about the devil, we talk about Satan, and I think we have to just pause for a minute to, to answer a potential objection in the audience, which is this. Do, do y'all really believe in Satan? Like, is it horns, pitchfork, red guy? Do you really believe in the devil? And do you really believe in hell? Um, it, and there's a lot of different questions as to how this comes up. So one might be, how could a good God send people to hell? And that's an interesting question and a common question in our culture today, uh, for the moment, within our particular culture Or you might just have this feeling when you read a passage about the devil where you kind of say, unless we're pulling some sort of moral lesson from this, I'm not sure that I'm ready to jump on board with like Satan tempting us and and we're going to talk about how we can fight Satan in church. Um, I understand the question. My, My curiosity, whenever I read the Bible and I see something where I go, oh, that's, that seems dumb to me. Or whenever I read, I hear a sermon or I read the Bible and I go, that is counterculture in a way that I wouldn't respect people if they really did that or believed that. It should make me ask the question, what is it about my particular culture, my ethnic background, the assumptions that I make in my life that would cause me to think that's dumb? So for instance, I hear a lot of people um, these days talking about difficult issues and they tend to scoff at one another. Like, have you ever caught yourself like hearing somebody's opinions and your response just, that's dumb, you know? Like, that's, it's just scoffing. And that's a common thing in our, in our world today, where there's not a lot of dialogue about difficult issues in the world. There's just a lot of scoffing and a lot of internet posting about how everyone else who disagrees is dumb or closed-minded or what have you. 
anytime I catch myself scoffing at people, I have been trying to pause and say, scoffing, Mike, is a bad argument. There's nothing credible to it. How can I uh, put together a more thoughtful response? And I have noticed that I still have to do that even with the Bible, where I go, oh, what is it about us that would cause us to go, oh, Satan, the devil, it's like one of those uh, sexy Halloween costumes, devil, or it's a cartoon, or it's a pitchfork, and it seems silly for some reason in our culture, but it, it makes us ask the question, what is it about our culture and our experience that causes us to go, oh, that seems weird? Really, when we scoff, what we're really saying is, all the people that I know and respect think that's dumb. That's all scoffing is. So in the end, I think we could make, but though we don't have time today, to make a point that Satan does exist because Jesus believed in the devil. And that hell exists because Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else. And the one thing I know about Jesus, even in our culture today, assumed, is that Jesus is known for inclusion and love and patience and grace. So automatically, if there's a scoff at us saying, we need to talk about the strategy of Satan, we should back up and say, why would that seem weird that Jesus believed in the devil, that the Bible describes uh, something about Satan, and he can work. And I'll go back to the, uh, the greatest uh, move, quote about Satan, which is that the greatest deception that the devil ever pulled uh, is convincing the world that he doesn't exist, you know, which is from that movie with that, that guy. What's the movie again? Usual Suspects, exactly. So that, enough about the devil. We need to talk about how Satan schemes to disrupt the lives of Christians or even in our culture. Now, temptation can come from one of three angles. It can come from the world, it can come from the flesh, and come from the devil. What I mean to say is it wouldn't be appropriate for us to blame every temptation in your life on Satan. You know, you yell at your wife and you're like, listen, possessed by Satan for about 20 minutes. Sorry, babe. It wouldn't be uh, accurate to say that Satan is just the evil version of the mystical kind of uh, uh, supernatural world as though Satan is just as powerful as God. The Bible doesn't describe it that way. Satan has a realm. He has uh, some ability, some power to affect things. But as Christians with the Holy Spirit, with our word in community, there's no reason why we should leave this morning and go, I'm afraid of the work that Satan might do in my life. And yet... Temptation can come from Satan in three ways. His influence on the world. And by the world, I mean the imperceptible cultural system that inoculates us against a deep allegiance to God's will, the world. Or the flesh, which is internally uh, can, can affect things in the world that affect us internally. Not that we are possessed by Satan as people who have the Holy Spirit. But still, we have this kind of internal function in our own sin that is almost like a virus that messes with our operating system that prevents us from believing the truth. And then thirdly, Satan can uh, do some work himself, though he is not omnipresent as described in Scripture. And the devil, described here in this passage as a tempter, uh, elsewhere as an adversary, the, the Satan in the book of Job, the, the accuser, uh, limited but still immensely powerful. So, We need to understand his strategy. The first strategy we see in the passage is that Satan can tempt you through either of these three causes, through hunger and thirst. The reason it's important to recognize in what way Satan might tempt you is because if you're in like a battle, like in the ancient world, if you're in a battle, 
and you know from what angle you're going to be attacked, and you know in what scenario and what context those attacks come, you have a real chance at winning. You have a distinct advantage in that battle if you know from exactly what angle the attack might come. You can build up defenses. You can build up offensive strategies to defeat your enemy. And the same thing is true about recognizing how Satan might work in your life or in the world. So he uses hunger and thirst because Jesus is fasting. And it says he's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And who'd have thought? The passage says, and he was hungry. Have you ever tried fasting for 40 days or 40 nights? Durr, he was hungry, I'm sure. And when Satan rolled up and said, you should turn these stones into bread, if I were being tempted in that moment, I would go, mmm, bread. You know, the stones would just change into like bread, and then I would not pass the test of the temptation. So it's in that kind of like feeling where Jesus is thirsty, Jesus is hot, Jesus is hungry, that the devil tempts him. And we look in verse 2 of our passage, uh, I'm sorry, verse 3, that the tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And his answer was, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. The point is, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to base my idea of who God is, my truth of who God is, based on what I'm feeling right now. Does that sound relevant to you? That the te- in the temptation, Jesus' response is, man does not live on bread alone. He's saying, I'm not going to base my idea of truth and my definition of who God is on my immediate feelings and exactly what God is giving me in this very particular moment. Instead, his response is from Deuteronomy chapter 8, and here's the context for Deuteronomy 8. In verse 2, it says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands, verse 3 of Deuteronomy 8. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which is bread that comes down from heaven, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. Why did he do this? It says in Deuteronomy 8, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Satan is tempting Jesus to say, you should be lonely, you should be thirsty, you should be hungry, you should be wondering if God even cares about you anymore. Look around yourself. Your life sucks. You're you're sweaty, and you're hungry, and you're powerless. How can you claim that God loves you? Look at your circumstances. And God is saying, it's not that I depend on these, these circumstances right now, because there's a more dependable source of truth, which is from every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What a temptation. And of course, Jesus, I'm sorry, Satan knows that Jesus is the Son of God. So check out how slight this deception is. Satan knows that Jesus is the Son of God. And so in the first temptation, he says, you know how you, Jesus, in the Old Testament, as a a person of the Trinity, gave bread to the Israelites. Now, shouldn't you do the exact same thing to show yourself off as God? He's tempting Jesus not just to eat bread. There's something deeper here going on where he's saying, you should do exactly what you did in the Old Testament, and you should give yourself bread. You would be feeding your stomach and proving to the world that you were the powerful God that existed in the Old Testament. But Jesus, knowing his role and knowing why he was on earth, did not, in that moment, 
choose to identify as God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, because he knows he is just the Son. He is, he is the, fulfilling the role of the Son, the person of the second person of the Trinity, the Son. And Jesus' role is to identify with sinners and model for us how to obey God. And that's how slight the temptation is, where Satan's going, you should show that you're big and powerful. And he's saying, no, I'm here to identify with sinners, to obey God in, in, the, in the exact way that God's people before were not able to. I'm becoming the obedient, beloved son that the sons and daughters of God in Israel did not obey. He's saying, I cho- I'm choosing to be hungry. I'm choosing to go down this path that leads to the cross so that my people can be freed and live in the promised land with God. That's Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let's do some application. We are tempted in a number of ways that um, is from Satan. One, we are tempted with hunger and thirst, but we're also tempted to discouragement. And I would say just in being the pastor at this congregation, um, knowing our propensity to isolate, our propensity to be lonely, to feel like we're the only person with the struggles that we have, the only person who feels like they're depressed, the only person who feels like um, when when they pray, it feels like talking to a wall, sometimes when you're going through trials, or when you open the Bible, it feels like eating sandpaper. We isolate. We're sometimes filled with shame, so we don't want to say out loud what we really think or the questions that we really have. Like, we're not sure if people are going to accept us, if we're the real us. And so we're just tempted into despair and discouragement because part of that temptation is to say, you're weak. You're the only one. You're the only one that is so bad that you keep having these, it's plagued with the same perpetual sins and the same perpetual doubt. I'm reminded of the psalm, I'm sorry, the, the hymn that we just sang. We just sang it. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. If anything, the good news of Jesus frees us up to be ourselves, to be honest, to be sinners who are saved and are striving to grow closer to God. And because of that, we're freed up to say, I look to him. When I'm tempted to isolate, when I'm tempted to be on my own and just go through trials myself and white knuckle it and say, I can handle this, I can get through it, we look to him who because of his sacrifice on the cross freed us up to be able to be free, forgiven, uh, to, to be dependent, on, in a sense, the manna that gets us through the wilderness, the provisions that God gives us that we eat to sustain us to get through trials. So we're tempted to discouragement. Last thing about discouragement, a lot of times I'll talk to people in church who are really facing a difficult season, but it's actually a good thing. Like, uh, not every trial is just a lesson that God's trying to teach you. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly, like, the Bible's not about you, and because it's not about you, you can't flip to page 100, and it's like, you should go to UCLA, and you flip further, and it's like, you're going through this tough season right now, but, like, hang out because it's going to get better in two months. Like, the Bible's not about you, so it, it makes sense that you wouldn't be able to just open it and have it be about the exact thing you're going through. There's some mystery to us going, God, what are you doing? What are you trying to teach me? What are you allowing me to come into my life? What, what's the deal here? And sometimes we just don't know outside of the direction to look to him. And so sometimes you'll talk to people and they'll say, 
I'm just not growing in my faith right now. Or I'm struggling with sins that I used to struggle with, had a handle on for a while, and then now they're kind of, the flames are kind of catching fire again. Or you'll hear people say, I'm going to leave church, or I'm going to stop going to church, or I'm going to ditch my small group because I'm just not getting fed like I used to. And all of these things are actually symptoms of you transitioning in a phase of your faith. What I mean is, there is such a thing as spiritual infancy. And there's such a thing as spiritual childhood. And there's such a thing as spiritual adolescence and spiritual adulthood. In spiritual infancy, you're a new Christian. And so in that scenario, you feed on milk. It's basic truths. They're meaningful to you. You're a new Christian. Maybe all you need to grow in your faith when you first become a Christian is just showing up to church. And the sermons just hit you right where you are, and you're like, God is good. And you worship, and you love it. And you, you hang out in the courtyard, and somebody says something encouraging to you, and it's exactly what you needed to hear. A lot of times when you're, when you're a spiritual infant, milk is good for you. It's all easily accessible. It's easily digestible, and it's meaningful for you because it's helping you go from infancy to the next phase of your faith. But there will be a turning point where that stuff does not work anymore. And if you, if, if you see that as a trial, if you see that as a test, if you see that as a, a temptation, you have a choice now to either go back to milk and say, I'd much rather live the rest of my life just drinking milk and expecting that if I get good enough milk, if the music is just like, and then you're just like, yes, milk. Like it's just, it hits you right there, the best worship band of the coolest preacher sneakers pastor or whatever it is. Preacher sneakers is an Instagram account, by the way, if you want to check them out. It's like the coolest pastors in LA. Preacher sneakers, hashtag. So um, what I mean to say is a lot of Christians never grow in their faith because they're just always looking for better milk. And they they think, I I just got to get something better instead of something different. Now, it might be time for you to transition to solid foods or to whatever the solid food is. I'm new to having a baby, so like whatever it is where you blend up the little sweet potatoes, it's not solid foods yet, but it's like that stuff where where it makes the baby's poo smell worse. So uh, it might be time for that. Spiritual childhood, and I'll run through these quickly. When you're a child, you have more awareness, but you're plagued with bigger questions. And some of you might have kids in that phase of life where they just ask why all the time, and you're like, if you ask one more time, I'm not, the answer I'm going to get you is you're grounded. So you have bigger questions, and it can be discouraging because you don't have answers automatically, but in order to get to spiritual adolescence, you need some answers, which means you'll need to do something to get some answers to the questions of your faith. Some of you might be in spiritual adolescence where you have a little bit more freedom in your faith to grow. You're not a child anymore, but your faith is now more dependent on your habits to grow. Before, it used to depend on everyone else to help you feed you milk, or feed you uh, baby food, but now it's time for you to be a spiritual teenager, so to speak, where your faith is dependent on whether you can make the choices to help you get into spiritual maturity. You have more freedom, you have more knowledge, you have more of a foundation to your faith, but so many Christians never leave adolescence into spiritual adulthood because it's a very discouraging season. Can I get an amen to some Biola students where you went to Christian college, you had an extended period of adolescence, some Christian college high school kids or something where uh, you didn't get kicked out of the house into adulthood. Do you know somebody who went through a season of dry, difficult questions because all of a sudden they were ready to go into adulthood, but they said, it's just too much. I just can't do it. 
And so they just walk away from their faith. But really, it was God working in them to say, when you're a little kid, everything's black and white. And when you're in spiritual adolescence, everything's gray, and you're like, I don't know what the Bible says, I don't know what's true or whatever. And then being a spiritual adult is not black and white, it's not gray, it's multicolored. Being a spiritual adult means you can say, there are some mysteries in life, and sometimes trials hit and life stinks, and you just go, I don't know exactly what's going on. There's a mystery to it. And yet, all of the world is not gray and a, a mess of lack of truth because spiritual adults can say, and yet God is good. He has revealed himself through his son so that I know he loves me and he'll never forsake me. That's what a spiritual adult can do. And so if you're in that phase of life, praise God that God got you there where you can say some things, I don't know what the heck the Bible says about that. I don't know. Or you go, there's some mystery to following Jesus and yet there are things that are true and you can go to the bank with them and they fuel your faith and your joy every single day as a Christian. My prayer is that we don't get stuck or overly discouraged in any of those phases of life. A lot of times, these phases of life can be like a, a, a kid learning how to ride a bike without training wheels. Like mom or dad, you give them the pep talk and you say, listen, you're going to eat it hard in the next half hour. But if we stick with it, and if you don't stop, you'll be able to ride your bike and you'll have a new level of like freedom and joy. And I'm going to take these training wheels off right now, and you're going to be opened up to something new and powerful in your life, being able to ride a bike. Uh, it reminds me of the like, old viral video of the little kid who learns how to ride a bike and the dad turns his camera on and says, son, how do you feel now that you learned how to ride a bike? Do you guys remember this video? And he says, rock and roll. Nobody? Okay, let's watch the video then. Feel alive? I feel, I feel I feel happy of myself. I feel happy of yourself too. What do you got any words of wisdom? What about for all the other kids trying to learn how to ride their bike? Can you say anything to them? Everybody, I know you can believe in yourself. <laughs> if you believe in yourself, you will know how to ride a bike. <laughs> if you don't, you just keep practicing. You won't get the hang of it, I know it. If you, if you keep practicing, you won't get the hang of it. And then you can get better and better at it. And you get and you do it. Give me some thumbs up. Thumbs up, everybody. All right. Rock and roll. Yeah, that's right. Rock and roll. I want to encourage you. If you showed up to church this morning and you're just dry, there are things we can do about this, but it might be a season where God is saying, it's time for you to take that next step of faith, to trust me. Instead of focusing on just your immediate provision from God, the bread that he's giving you, the, the feeling of being full, of, of feeling like God is close, he might be testing you. He might be tempting you. He might, well, he, he might be um, testing you or putting you through a trial or whatever to help you go, I'm going to trust on the word of God. I'm going to trust on who he is, even though my immediate circumstances are difficult right now. Let's close with this. We need strength for testing. Strength for, for the test. Temptations are tests, as I said. The solution to it, the strength for it, is an overwhelming joy in worship, which takes us to our third temptation. In verse 8, again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. 
All of this I will give you, Satan said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him, and angels came, attended to him. If I were one of the angels, I would have been uh, like, I, I wonder if it would have been funny just to like have just finished a hamburger, like right when you roll up. <laughs> Jesus is fasting in the desert. Oh, sorry, time to work. Sorry, God. So uh, the angels show up, they take care of, uh, of Jesus, and this was the easiest temptation, right? This was not something that was difficult for Jesus. He says, get away from me, Satan. And then his quote, again from Deuteronomy, is worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Here's the point. That is a command of Scripture. The command of Scripture is that we are all meant and commanded to worship God. And that might seem like a weird command for God to give. And that would be unloving. It might be megalomaniacal. It might be self-centered for God to say, you need to worship me, if it weren't for the fact that our lives are made right when we worship God. Like, it's kind of an old idea from the story of Scripture that what is for God's glory is also for our good. He set it up so that when we live for Him, when we glorify Him, when we make much of Him in our life, then what happens to us is like a reward, not always in immediate material circumstances, but it's the way life works. It's the way our relationships work. When I glorify God, it motivates me to love my spouse. When I worship God first, it, doesn't, it, it allows me to break the temptation of making my kids my life, you know? That I don't need them to be my success. I don't need them to be my uh, um, acceptance. I don't need my kids to, I only have one, but you know what I'm saying. I'm speaking for all of us. I don't need kids to like me to feel special because I worship God. And now I'm freed up to love my kids. I'm freed up to make responsible business practices. I'm freed up to make healthy choices when it comes to alcohol because I'm not tempted to find my joy in something. My joy is in him. I worship him and he uh, blesses me. He provides for me. He's my God. He loves me. And so when I glorify him, these other temptations uh, subside in their ability. They don't grab my heart like they used to. We are meant to glorify God. And you might say, um, well, that seems weird, but if you went home and you asked, let's say you're married, and you, you asked your spouse, sweetie, must I, am I commanded to kiss you? Your spouse will probably say, yeah, you're commanded to kiss me. Yeah, you have to kiss me. But then, of course, it wouldn't just be that, right? It would be, but it, I want you to want to kiss me. So my command is, I command you to want to kiss me. But that's how worshiping God is. It's not just that we're supposed to worship in the sense that we sing some songs and raise our hands. Instead, God, in his loving, merciful, jealous love for us, is saying, if you want to have a relationship with me, then yeah, you got to worship me. In the same way that my wife would say, if you want to have a relationship with me, if you want me to stick around, yeah, I want you to want to kiss me. So we're commanded in that sense to worship God. And Jesus in this wilderness above the Dead Sea reminds us that the Dead Sea is dead for a reason. It's a low-lying area about 1,400 feet below sea level. The Dead Sea is gross, smelly, 
uh, it can kind of like, you can feel it on your skin, the water from the Dead Sea. It's 9.6 times as salty as the ocean. Because of this, nothing can live in the Dead Sea. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. It's dead. Why is the Dead Sea dead? Because it has no outlet. It has no place to take the stuff. And so it is with our life that when we make our lives about us, when we go through trials and we turn inward and we say, I need to protect myself, I need to run away from God, I need to isolate, I need to uh, figure out how I can fix myself before I invite anyone else into my life or before I go back to God, I need to clean myself up before I go back to church. There's a deadness that lives inside of us just like the Dead Sea is dead. Instead, Jesus tells us, clues us in, that we are meant to worship God always. So if you are going through temptation, or even in this week you find yourself in a place where you're going, I'm tempted to just be angry or bitter or gossipy or lustful. Instead of hiding away and feeding into the deadness like the Dead Sea, turn to him, look to him. And see him there who made an end to all your sin because that sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free. I'm free. Turn to him. Find your acceptance in him. Find your joy in him. To the extent that we do it, we can stand up to temptation. Let's pray.